Hi everyone, it's your old friend and MC, Ross Schaefer. And after two years of virtual EEA awards, which was an out-of-body experience for me, I couldn't tell if you were eating, drinking, laughing, or even if you had pants on. But we're back. The EEA Gala will be live and in person May 24th at the Grand Hyatt downtown Washington, D.C. We're going to be celebrating 195 of the top engineering achievements in the nation, and this year we'll highlight the top 36 projects and reveal the Grand Conceptor live at this event. Now, for those of you who have been with us before, we've called this the Oscars of the engineering world because it's such a glamorous night of getting dressed up, great food, great entertainment. Regretfully, however, this year, Will Smith's schedule will not allow him to attend. But you can. So join us for the grand celebration of the crucial importance of engineering to society and to the world. That's May 24th at the Grand Hyatt in D.C. I'm Ross Schaefer, and I'll see you there. Welcome to Engineering Influence, a podcast from the American Council of Engineering Companies. And today, we are having the first of uh, a series of podcasts that really digs into the issue of climate change, sustainability, adaptation, what the industry is doing to confront these issues, what these issues are, quite honestly, what are the real challenges, and what should policymakers really focus on to deal with these pressing issues that really will define our environment and the built environment for the foreseeable future. And this is a complex subject with a lot of moving pieces, and we figured we'd kind of set the stage on this episode. And to do that, I have uh, been blessed, thankfully, because this is not my area of expertise, to be joined by two experts. We have Lauren Evans, who you have heard from before. Uh, she is with Pinion and Environmental out of Colorado, and we have Andy Bachman. He is with the Idaho National Laboratory. He is, uh, they both are uh, people who work very closely with both the uh, issues related to environmental engineering, of course, from Lawrence's perspective, and Andy, he's with uh, a DOE, Department of Energy um, program out at the laboratory and, and really looking at, uh, you know, what this all means for our industry and society in general. So Lauren and Andy, thank you both for uh, coming on the show today. Pleasure to be with Thanks, you, Joe. You know, like I said, this is going to be the first out of a series and to kind of set the stage, you know, we talk about extreme weather, we talk about climate change. We have a new book that was published that is out right now with ACEC called Climate Change in the Built Environment. This is something that we're taking a very uh, a close look at. So for engineers in our in our industry, our members, you know, when we talk about climate change, what do you think is the first thing you would want them to think of to get rid of all the noise of all the political debate? But, you know, Lauren, from your perspective, if, if, if you're addressing this issue, what's the what's the one thing that you would want someone in our industry to think about when 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 addressing climate change? Well, I think I would want them to think about the incredible role that engineers have in all aspects of, of looking at this issue. And um, I think to me, there's a lot of talk about what we call mitigation and going to net zero. And I think from my perspective, often overlooked is just the fact that we are building projects today that have to start functioning a year from now. And we have to make sure that those 
projects are going to be resilient in the current conditions we find ourselves in and that we're not building infrastructure that's going to fail in mm -hmm. the near future as we as we like work towards net zero in some future time so to me that's the um, part of this issue that really resonates with me andy how about you for me uh since i work immersed uh at uh, the national labs with engineers and scientists we deal with so much complexity so I always am trying to boil it down into things that are simple enough for regular people to understand, including me. I see engineers job as solving problems. And I think uh, climate change invokes for many folks what Lauren was uh, describing on the mitigation side, reducing greenhouse gases mm -hmm. uh, through a variety of techniques. And engineers are working that problem, right? They're the ones that design and develop uh, more uh, efficient energy sources, uh, better insulated buildings, electric vehicles, and on and on and on. But the other side of the coin that gets less attention, at least I'm pretty sure it does because I've been asking around, is the uh, adaptation and resilience side. Mm -hmm. The part that admits that these impacts that we hope to forestall uh, on, with our mitigation changes are already landing. We can't undo it. And they're only going to gather and get worse over the coming years. 2021 was a doozy. So we need engineers armed with the best data that they can get their hands on to uh, identify and find ways of protecting infrastructure upon which the infrastructures upon which we all depend. And I think the engineers uh, are the ones we would turn to first uh, and most to get those jobs done. Yeah, you know, you pull in both those phrases that are seemingly and incorrectly a lot of the times interchanged in this debate, right? You have people talking about sustainability, resilience, adaptation, mitigation, and they're buzzwords and they sound real good, but a lot of times, especially policymakers tend to misconstrue those topics. Like you said, uh, Andy, the adaptation question. You know, mitigation means that you're trying to get ahead of something. You know, we talk about pre-disaster mitigation. Okay, spend the money now so you actually engineer infrastructure so that it's prepared for the next storm. But adaptation is these effects are already being felt and we're already behind, we're already chasing uh, some of these effects. So how do we design infrastructure that adapts to an environment that is already changing? In your experience, I mean, how, how has it been trying to untangle these terms, right? And, and try to focus in on, on, on exactly what needs to happen to solve a specific problem. I mean, Lauren, have you, have you encountered any problems with like you're dealing with clients communicating with them and like trying to untangle some of this, some of this conflicting terminology? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think and you know, at our water energy and environment committee at ACEC, we've talked a lot about this and even how do we define these terms so that we're all speaking the common language, especially as we're looking to, you know, go up on Capitol Hill and try to educate lawmakers and, and affect um, good changes and good, you know, funding and sources like that. It's, it's really a difficulty, I think. Andy, do you agree? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think, um, our colleague Lynn has uh, has put it well when he said that uh, 
the term net zero has captured the imaginations of, of folks. And net zero, of course, means heading towards a, a time when a given organization or uh, a country even uh, is no longer adding additional greenhouse gases to the atmosphere and to the oceans. There's nothing really comparable yet, I don't think, on the adaptation and resilience side. Um, maybe, you know, so, so much with uh, engineering is about doing real things and then marketing is something viewed as fluffy and uh, unhelpful. But in this case, I think in terms of marketing and communications, we may need to come up with some type of easy to share rallying cry that brings more attention to that side of the coin I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the net zero as a goal is something that's talked about a lot. I mean, you've got uh, the cities that have uh, building codes that are kind of focused on net zero. You have, uh, you know, national policies that are focused on that as well. And, you know, it kind of goes into, to an extent, the sustainability argument and the danger, honestly, from policymakers to put all of our eggs into one basket of sustainability. Uh, because what does that mean? And, and the threat that if you do that, then are you cutting off adaptation or mitigative strategies that could actually work? I mean, from your perspectives um, in doing this work, I mean, what, what is the danger there of having that goal on that, that, you know, everybody wants to talk about sustainable this or that, sure. but, you know, at what cost, right? Um, I, you know. Andy, where, where, where do you come in on that? Well, I, I, I hope that this doesn't come across uh, as um, a, a this or that or a zero-sum game, but we either do sustainability or adaptation because, I mean, the truth is we've got to do both and we have to do both at a speed which we are just not used to. I think uh, one way of phrasing it or one way of framing it to tease out the, what's needed is is to be extreme. If we mm -hmm. only did sustainability, and uh, I, and I am using the term loosely to mean mitigation, if we only attempted to remove uh, our contributions of greenhouse gases, that will even if we did a good job at that, and so far we're not doing a, at all a good job at that. But if that's all we focused on, then these physical climate impacts—the too much rain and too much heat and not enough water and storms of increasing frequency and velocity. Yeah. Uh, those things will be pummeling us. And at some point, leadership in government and in companies and in communities is going to go, what the heck are you guys doing? I mean, you know, you know, it, we appreciate that you're trying to reduce emissions at whatever speed you are, but look around these multi-billion dollar events are happening in the dozens and we need help. We need uh, better, better proactive uh, planning, hardening of our assets so that we don't lose our electricity, so that our water is still drinkable, so that our stormwater isn't co constantly uh, overtopping the, the banks and the mm -hmm. levees and things like that. So it's just uh, we need to do both so we don't end up in that yeah. situation. By the way, I'm sorry this is taking so long. Please edit as you see fit. Yeah. <laughs> if we, I set it up as an either or, right? So if we only did, if we only did resilience and adaptation, the hardening of infrastructure, the functional adaptation of critical functions, um, and we didn't do sustainability and mitigation at all, then for a little while we might be in better shape. 
uh, our assets would be able to withstand the, the blows that are landing on them better than they, they currently could, mm-hmm. but we wouldn't be able to keep up. And eventually yeah. we'd reach tipping points where uh, even our best adaptation efforts would be overwhelmed. And so we, we can't just do just that either. Yeah. I mean, Lauren, you, you work, you know, at the state level, you know, in Colorado and also you're active with ACEC national. I mean, with your interactions with uh, leaders in, 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 uh, in Colorado, I mean, how, how, how are they viewing this? Are they, uh, I would imagine it's a little bit more of a forward state when it comes to environmental issues compared to many others, just given the, 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 the blessing of so many natural resources in the state. But how, you know, how are people, how are, how are people relaying, you know, sustainability, you know, versus mitigation and adaptation? Yeah. And I look at sustainability, I guess, a little bit differently that it's a much broader term than just, um, mitigation because it you know we use it if you look at the isi envision tool to Mm -hmm. build infrastructure you know there's all kinds of quality of life issues right and that other natural features and i think i mean andy talks about an either or and the problem is it's so much more complicated than that because we're going to have to make hard choices right you're going to have to say what is what is more important um perhaps you know cutting emissions in a way that might lead to impact some other, you know, environmental resource. You know, I always think back to when we started doing biodiesel and corn ethanol, mm-hmm. and right, we're, we're doing something that cuts emissions on the one end, but it created water quality issues. It created um, food price issues for, you know, people who depended on corn uh, for food. So this is such a complicated situation because we're going to have to make hard choices and we're going to have to sacrifice some things in in support of something else and um i don't think that the way we're set up politically to have discussions in this country recognizes that complexity yeah yeah Yeah, i was going to say um was the minute lauren mentioned hard choices and sacrifices i don't know uh depending on the age of the audience some some have seen uh some recall the show MASH in Korea and the helicopter would come in at the beginning of the show and the, the doctors and nurses would quickly assess the condition of the wounded soldiers and some would be tagged for heading to the operating room and some would be marked for doing nothing because wasn't, there wasn't any amount of effort they could apply to them that was going to save their lives. They were better off going after the soldiers who, who could be saved. And so that's how they pour, apportioned their efforts. In uh, climate adaptation and resilience, uh, there's going to be situations like that, and it's going to be really difficult for us uh, because we're going to want to save everything and make everybody happy. And in reality, we're going to have to choose the infrastructure, assets, and other functions that government at the various levels provides and put you know, most of the wood behind the arrow there uh, which by definition is going to leave some things as unsalvageable. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping I don't have to be part of uh, those conversations in addressing those with the public, but that is that does that does already lie in our future. You can even see that with the way the insurance industry is reshaping itself, along with FEMA, to talk about what's uh, acceptable and what's coverable in flood zones, and that's driving some early migration patterns. Yeah, I, I you raise a 
interesting point there that there's this kind of holistic view of um, when policymakers, especially at the national level, look at this, they talk about the world. They talk about the nation. They don't go into the granular winners, potential winners and losers when you're talking about this. And I think this kind of goes to the heart of the argument here. There's going to come a time we're going to have to make some choices. And there's going to be a question of, of what infrastructure makes sense, what, what makes uh, more sense to possibly abandon and move. And you, when you talk about some coastal communities, some communities in different states that were designed um, maybe you know, mid-century or so that they were, they were kind of figured, we're, you know, nothing's happening, we'll live the high life and we'll build out, uh, we'll, we'll reclaim land and build out in some areas that now we realize are going to be underwater. Or that we've done some, you know, expansions in some areas that possibly should not have been developed to begin with. Sure. I mean, having those, it's not popular, right? Because you're talking about displacement. You're talking about economic displacement. You're talking about displacement of people. And from the engineer's perspective, this is kind of pulling in the trusted advisor role. You know, how do you how do you think we're, the industry is going to have to navigate that? I mean... There's a point where it's, it's yes, here is the actual science, here's the actual math that says that if we don't do X, then Y is going to happen. But then you have the political concerns on top of that, of saying that, well, yeah, okay, that's great, but the political impact of this is greater than the actual result of the, of, of the change in the environment. I mean, Lauren, go to you first. I mean, how, how do you even think about that as, a, as, as an engineer? Yeah, I, I think I can just think of the projects I'm working on, right? Yeah. And, and and bring it down to that level, and and how can you best help your client make good decisions? Because I mean, the elephant in the room too that we don't talk about is money, right? Mm-hmm. We, we we don't have enough financial resources to do everything. And um, we've talked a lot in our committee about the need to look at life cycle cost assessments on projects more, you know, rather than just, and, and to look at options from that perspective. But, you know, I, I think for me, it's so overwhelming to think about it on a global scale that I can just think about project by project. How do we do yeah. the best project um, in front of us? That's, that's true. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the on the ground and that's the work that you're doing. I think, you know, project by project and, and, and challenge by challenge, trying to figure out the solutions. Andy at the national lab level, um, are you guys looking at this as a little bit more of a, as a blue sky question, or is it more of a, uh, um, you know, war table kind of thing? I'd say, um, again, as you, as you said, when you're coming from the national lab perspective, you're supposed to be thinking about taking on the hardest problems, ones that uh, private industry and academia are not equipped to, to solve. And um, I tend to look at these things through three different lenses. They give you different altitudes, sort of uh, national security, economic security, public health, and uh, where possible uh, equity. Um, when you're talking about national security, you're thinking about the infrastructure assets that support you know, the military, the intelligence community. In our country, of course, national security is inextricably interwoven with economic security. Our military is as strong as our economy helps it, <laughs> helps mm-hmm. fund it to be, right? Yeah. And, um, when you come down out of that high altitude view 
uh, across CONUS and uh, up into uh, Alaska and Hawaii, you come down into economic security. Now you're talking about the health of regions and cities and what, uh, what um, different types of uh, economies they have there, you know, whether it's more agrarian or more urban. And so what's the infrastructure that's required for those things? Yeah. And public health is everywhere. Infrastructure failures. I'll just, we'll stick with the uh, ACEC, WEE, uh, water and energy. Those things start failing, then public health is immediately impaired. Yeah. And that it's not something we normally allow to happen. Sometimes it happens by accident and then we jump on top of it pretty quickly. Not as quickly as everybody wants, but. These are all different ways of looking at this. And uh, at least from the engineering perspective, we don't have to deal as much with human emotion. We can just look at the science, understand it as best we can, and apply the best solutions that we can. But it's the decision makers, right, in the boardroom and on the Hill, who are going to have to try to encourage altruism, try to encourage sacrifices for the public good, for the overall public good. Um, when the engineers offer them a, a palette of options. Yeah, though I think, Andy, um, we've seen that public emotion is becoming more and more a reality in the projects that we do, right? I mean, gone are the days where we could say, hey, trust us, this is the best project, and um, you know, this is what we're going to do, And because the public is just too actively engaged um, in everything we do now. And so you ask Jeff, what we're going to have to learn to do better, I think we're going to have to do a much better job of managing expectations and emotions as we explain to people the options that Andy laid out that, you know, we're coming to in a, in a more logical, scientific way, maybe, but um, there's going to be a lot of emotion involved that we're going to have to learn to deal with. And we're also going to have to learn to partner with organizations that maybe we're not used to partnering with, which um, is is why Andy's on this podcast with ACEC, right? Because um, he recognized that government can't do this alone, that the business community was going to have to be actively engaged in helping. And he reached out to us and has become a great partner in trying to figure out what that looks like. So, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the, the, I guess the days are gone where it would be, you know, hey, we're the experts and, and, and this is what we suggest and, and, and that usually communities or, or governments go along with it. I mean, Lauren, through your time, I mean, how has that changed? I want to dig into that a little bit because, you know, we always talk about the community impact and we talk about um, the engineer being put in the role of not only designing the project and advising the client, but then also helping to educate the public that's going to be either the end user or directly affected by the project. And their ability to meet and um, almost, you know, it's part of the government relations kind of experience. It's that grassroots part. It's, it's talking to the communities that are impacted. How have you noticed that that change? Is it more organized? Are there pressure groups? Are there specific um, environmental groups that you've noticed have rallied around, you know, getting involved at the, at, at, you know, the level of project inception and, and kind of following through the entire life cycle? Yeah, I, I think the biggest change that I've seen is the projects that used to be local, right? And so you were dealing with just the local people in the community who were going to be impacted have become national. So um, 
issue groups that are against, you know, ever doing a certain thing. They're weighing in on projects all over the country, even if they don't really have constituents that are directly impacted, right? So um, it's, it's all communications is so much easier to get people involved in now that um, it opens up a whole new level of scrutiny that it's 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 something we're looking at. I mean, you have the uh, organized, you know, both on the left and the right. You have legislative networks at the state level with uh, sample legislation on an on on a range of issues that uh, they try to get out there as much as possible to try to you know get states to adopt. And 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 it's uh, it's something that we have to be cognizant of, and we are in the advocacy perspective of how do you deal with that and how do you kind of cut it off before it happens if it's going to be detrimental. To, to the work that's being done by the industry. Um, you know, Andy, you know, from the National Lab perspective to what Lauren said, you know, how important is that communication with industry from, from the um, more strategic focus that you have? Because you have to look at so many different aspects of how these issues impact the United States. But how, how important is to have that industry voice from ACEC and in, in, in helping you to to kind of navigate all these issues. I think the term that I, I kept hearing and has continued, continued to be put into practice uh, by the federal government, uh, especially coming from my original cybersecurity domain is uh, public-private partnerships, mm -hmm. like that uh, a national lab or a, a number of them, for example, can come up with some really groundbreaking research and can work to mature it through uh, R&D. But uh, if it's ever going to really change the world, it has to be let go. It has to be go through tech deployment and transfer and be commercialized. Mm -hmm. And then, at least in our country, those with a profit motive can take it and scale it and have, and have a big impact. If it just stays in the ivory towers of a research institute, whether it's a national lab or some 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 place in uh, academia, then um, it'll be interesting to read about, but you won't have had an appreciable impact mm -hmm. on the world. And uh, the national labs, for those listening who aren't that familiar with them, the uh, number one way they measure themselves and that Congress measures measures them too is uh, by impact. Yeah. How much are they actually demonstrably helping, and not just uh, using vast vast sums of tax money to do interesting projects. Well, that's, you know, we've covered a, I think we've covered a lot of ground in the first, the first show here. I think that, you know, what we're going to do here is, is dig into both issues related to adaptation and mitigation over a, over a series of, of programs and to talk about not just the, the theoretical, but you know, what needs to happen looking at um, issues related to, uh, like you said, Lauren, life cycle analysis, development of standard of care, uh, residual risk strategies. We're going to look at uh, permitting, which is something else of, of, of great concern. So, I mean, these are all things that we're going to dig into specifically as we go. And, um, you know, to kind of set the stage here, I really do appreciate both of your 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 time and your, and your expertise on the issue. And we hope that uh, we can involve you in uh, the future programs on this subject. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here, Jeff. 
Absolutely. It was great to have you. Um, and again, you know, I would really uh, recommend everybody to take a look at the book that is now on the ACEC bookstore. It's it's climate change and the built environment. We do go into some of these issues with some case studies. Uh, the It's uh, edited by a number of experts, both uh, engineers and researchers, uh, ACEC members and non. Uh, and it's a great resource. And then again, uh, Lynn uh, is running our Water, Energy, and Environment Committee. It's an open committee. If you're engaged in these subjects and you want to get involved in helping kind of set ECEC policy, and this is the place to do it, committee's going to be meeting at our convention in Washington, D.C. Uh, you can still register for that event. Uh, go up to ACEC.org, and you'll see uh, all the links that we have for the convention registration. But the committee will be joining at the event, and if you are interested, that's the perfect place to make an introduction. And uh, we will be having our second in the series of uh, the kind of our climate uh, shows very soon, so please stay tuned. And as always, this has been Engineering Influence Podcast from the American Council of Engineering Companies. We'll see you next time.